is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream with Mind and Heart. I'm Ryan Silberstein and with me is Megan Pojarski. Hello. And we are your hosts uh, through this chronological tour of every Disney movie ever. This week we are finishing our main episodes of season three. We have some extra episodes coming out in the next couple of weeks that we will talk about at the end of the show. But this is our last yeah, main topic episode that is talking about every feature-length Disney movie released in chronological order. So The Vanishing Prairie, the second feature-length true life adventure, is closing out our third season, or yeah, third season officially, uh, which mm -hmm. is crazy. It's very much the, the Living Desert sequel in the sense of like, you know, that was looking at deserts in the Southwest United States. And this is like, let's shift over the Rocky Mountains and talk about The Vanishing Prairie, I think the biggest surprise for me in this was how conservation focused it was, which I don't necessarily think about being a thing in this time period, but they're really like hammering home. Like these animals are like very much in danger and they're not animals that I think of as being endangered. Well, part of that is potentially because of this movie, because I was watching this and so this is a little bit of legacy, but I was watching and it's talking about the prairies. They used to be this massive area. Now they're just a tiny bit. So I looked it up. The statistic I found was that like 40% of the U.S. used to be prairies. And now 0.5% of what used to exist is left. So sadly, the prairie itself does seem to have pretty much vanished. But as we went through it, a lot of the animals that they were talking about, you know, there's not much of, they're endangered. There's something they said there's only a couple dozen in the world. I looked them up. There's more than 500 now. There are a few thousand. It seems like the conservation efforts after this point really worked. And I don't know if that's specifically this movie or if that's just kind of a broader trend. I know that I had seen a couple of references to environmental scholars basically saying this movie got them into their field, which is really impressive. But there's a lot of kind of weird trickles where we don't have the direct connection, but we can definitely say that, like, this movie was pushing a message before other people pushed it. It actually seems to have worked pretty well. I mean, that might be the actual most interesting thing about this movie, in a way, because, you know, watching it, I thought it was fine. I, I think the desert is... Despite how many insects there were and how much our moms would not want to watch it, uh, I just find <laughs> desert animals like more interesting. And, you know, I guess because they're animals, I can still use the word exotic compared to ducks that are prominently featured in the beginning of this movie. But 
-hmm. I found it engaging. It's a little less, it feels even less out of step with present day nature documentaries, except in a, in a few, a few key places, you know, and I had, a, I had a pleasant time watching it, but I was very surprised to learn again, how potentially big the impact of this movie was. And also again, like them actively talking about conservation. I don't think of that as starting until somewhere in the sixties outside of like, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, in the national parks and you know there's mm-hmm. there's things happening all throughout but you know not to this extent where they're talking about like these animals might go extinct and you know they don't directly say oh it's because we turned the prairies into farmland over hundreds mm-hmm. of years after we displaced indigenous people to do it they don't go there but they at least acknowledge that like this kind of environment this kind of uh, biome is actively in danger of, of being lost forever. So one of the interesting things I found when I was doing the research for this, so there's not many notes about this movie at all. If you pull up the Wikipedia page, I think it's like two paragraphs and that's it. So I had to dig a little bit deeper. And one thing that I found was, so as they did with so many things at this point, they like merchandising, they like diversifying what they're putting out. So they put out a book version of The Vanishing Prairie that more or less just shows kind of pictures and some information. But it had this little intro that explains how The Vanishing Prairie is different than the true life adventures that came before it. And that's really all we know about the conception. When we were talking about the living desert, we had, oh, it was this, you know, dissertation project, and here's how it was bought and expanded. And we don't have that here. All we have is their own words. So this is what Disney put out as kind of what they think is special about this movie and why they wanted to do it. Each of the others presented the way of life in some locale or among some group of animals. In the prairie, we do this job too, but in addition, a most important addition we feel, we are seizing history in the making. We are snatching a dwindling opportunity to record on film and here in book form, a kind of Native American life which within two human generations has been all but crowded out of existence. Again, we don't have the direct statistics to say, you know, this movie came out and that saved the prairies. But it's definitely significant that not only was this kind of a big theme in the movie, but they outright say in the book version, like, this is what we want to happen here. We have Walt Disney conservationist uh, as another... (laughs) Another another wrinkle in the, the the portrait of Walt that we're sort of building as we go along. I mean, I you know we obviously don't know how much he was directly involved with that. Um, not that I think Walt would have been like, yes, burn them to the ground and install suburban housing. No, just put up a theme park. Yeah, right, <laughs> right outside his beloved Marceline. I think the I just think it's interesting that it, there, obviously some of the shorts had come out before this. But then they're like, again, I think it's interesting that's like desert and then prairie as opposed to mountains or, you know, I mean, we do get some mountains in, in this, despite it being the prairie, but they don't go like mountains or forests or, you know, even swamp, like uh, in the short that they did about the Everglades. Like, I feel like the Everglades could have supported a feature length true life adventure just as well as the prairie does. So I just think it's also an unexpected choice of subject for me. And 
behind the scenes on this, there are, I think, I think it's also interesting as we will talk about when we do our bonus episode before next season about uh, the creation of Disneyland, the theme park, you know, as well as Disneyland, the show, actually, it's just, it's interesting how all of these people with story Disney careers are like mm-hmm. working in animation and then they're like, boom, now I'm working in TV and I'm still kind of doing some animation or I'm working in theme parks, you know, like I'm designing rides for uh, this theme park. And, you know, before that I was an animator and not just like drawing concept art, but literally some of these people like became like engineers working for Disney. And here it's like, oh, also, you know, I used to be an animator like James uh, Alger directed this. And, you know, he had worked, he was an animator on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. We talked about him as a director on Fantasia and Bambi and Victory Through Air Power, Seal Island, which is, uh, I think, the first of the True Life Adventure shorts uh, he mm-hmm. ended up directing. But then he was also working on the Wind of the Willows par- part of the Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. So it's just interesting how these, these, these guys, because men, like, I, I would think animation and documentary like even nature documentary are like furthest like they're like the furthest things you can get from each other because one has a camera that doesn't move at all and you put the the artwork underneath it and take a picture of it and one has people out in the field doing their best to capture actual footage of real animals not that these guys were out there in the field doing it they're more putting all the footage together but even that is like you know you don't we've talked about before you don't really edit animation because you Mm -hmm. have to redraw it if you do you can't just like oh like let's use a different take here it's like let's redraw three minutes of animation which is 24 cells a minute which we know will cost us you know x thousands of dollars it feels like such a different skill set it's interesting that both the director james auger and uh his co-writer for this winston hibbler both come out of animation uh hibbler was a writer on the Johnny Appleseed segment of Melody Time. He worked on both parts of Ichabod and Mr. Tone. He worked on Cinderella and Alice and Peter Pan. And, you know, and then jumps into the living desert and the vanishing prairie and also ends up narrating a bunch of these true life adventures, including this one. For a select few, obviously we've talked about many of the behind-the-scenes bad things about working at Disney, and of course there's still plenty of those as we record this on the day that the SAG contract has been more or less settled and we're still dealing with the aftermath of the writer's strikes and all of the wonderful things that Disney and the other studios are doing there. Those select few really could kind of just go wherever they wanted to. One of the things that we're going to be covering this episode is a recent short that came out about the history of Disney, and it includes somebody who worked at the studio from 1953, from the mailroom to becoming literally every role you could in the company. And it's cool to see that for those select few, and I would guess that those select few are a combination of the people who had been there from the early creative days, people that Walt just really liked, and then probably just the people who kind of took it upon themselves to, you know, add new things in and and expand their own horizons, really do have the opportunity to do so much within the company. So Alger ended up being inducted as a Disney legend in 1998, 
Hibbler was inducted in 1992, but it's still just kind of seeing these people who get to play so many different roles and bring that spark of Disney magic from animation to live action to documentary and every way, you know, backwards and forwards. It's always interesting to me to think about, you know, just how much has changed in you know the last, like even half, well, I guess half century plus, if we're going back to the 1950s, because when I say half century, I'm still thinking the year 2000. <laughs> because that that is a millennial problem. But, you know, but Bernie Mattinson, who is the Disney legend who appears in the Once Upon a Studio short, he, like, literally just, like, had a portfolio of drawings, like, walked up to the front gate and, like, talked to Walt Disney and got a job. And it's, like, now it's, like, they're not even going to talk to you unless you have a degree in art or whatever. And as things become more established, there's more barriers that get put up. And that's on top of the social structural barriers, like, you know, the fact that Mattinson was a white guy obviously helped his, you know, gave him access to things that other uh, minorities and women would not have access to right away. And so it's it's just really interesting to just feel the difference of like, you know, there's guys that end up, ended up being special effects legends because they answered, they like pulled a tab off of a flyer at uh, USC and ended up working for Industrial Light and Magic and like invent, people giving the opportunity to jump in and actually do something new and sort of invent something that didn't really exist before. You can think about how good that is, but also how few people got that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, and with Disney, as we've seen, it's been with few exceptions and exceptions who often don't last as long as the company. It's mostly white men, Mary Blair, and a select few of others that sort of pass through briefly here and there, despite having a huge impact. It's it's cool to think about that sort of upward mobility, but recognizing that it really only does exist for, you know, a select few in the in the grand scheme of things. And I think that one of the things with that is obviously who does the company put forward, but also who do people like us put forward? You know, we've spent several minutes talking specifically about Alger and Hibbler, who obviously did a lot for this movie. But according to D23, there were actually a team of 12 photographers, led by Tom McHugh, who actually filmed this. We are going to say most of their names for at least a moment or two, but those aren't the names that get recorded in history as the movers and shakers of the Disney company. And and Tom McHugh specifically is, is worth calling out. According to Leonard Malton's book, Disney was very secretive about how they got this footage typically like they really wanted people to like not really think about how the how the movies were actually made that they were really like just going out there and shooting the different animals but there was a, an article by joe hyams that was actually pretty revealing uh so tommy Hugh actually shot most of the buffalo footage over a long period of time basically like that whole there was like a whole two-year period where he was out there you know just being patient sort of getting the herd to, I guess, like, trust him in a way. He covered himself and his camera with an old buffalo hide and just sort of hung out with the buffalo. And when he saw one was carrying a calf, he just followed it around until it gave birth. And that's how he got the footage of the buffalo giving birth, by just, you know, being out there. And then 
to get that stampede footage, he set up a series of cameras along the path they would typically follow and put tripwires that activated the cameras, which I think is actually really incredible for this time period. Because I was watching that being like, how did they, like, I was just imagining a long line of people with cameras, like, at different points. But the fact that they were able to sort of automate it is, it is pretty amazing. And then there's things like the the prairie dogs, where as because I'm watching it, and I'm like, how are they getting this footage? Like, it doesn't make any sense that we can see the dirt, we can see the hole. And I was like, it feels like a zoo exhibit because the Philadelphia Zoo at least has an exhibit that is set up in, uh, which is how they did this in like an ant farm style, like mm-hmm. cutaway. But they have one for naked mole rats. So you can see them like in their like burrows and stuff. I'm watching it and I'm like, how did they like how did they do this? I was like, that has to be the reason, uh, or or the way they did it. But the way they integrate it, where like the groundhog is like crawling out of the hole and there's a cutaway and there's a groundhog coming out of the hole, and that ground or groundhog, prairie dog comes out of that hole, and like they do a pretty good job matching like that prairie dog looks pretty close to the one that that we just saw before even though like now i understand in my head those must be two very distinct prairie dogs like and so i i I do think there's a lot of effort that went into making this movie what it ultimately was and i think the people out in the field capturing the footage are just as important as the people who put it together just to put a few more of those names out there so tom McHugh did a lot with the buffalo footage i I love the story with the buffalo hide because that's such a cartoon shenanigan kind of thing. <laughs> it's, you know, I think about Hercules when pain and panic, like, become a girl Pegasus to lure Pegasus away. It's such a cartoony move, but it totally worked. Cleveland P. Grant uh, got the footage of the fight between the Buffalo Bulls and Paul Kenworthy Jr., Worked with McHugh on the Prairie Dogs. Merle Dusing did the Waterfall. And Dick Borden got the Canadian Geese. While Grant and Herb, or Herb, I never know how to say it, Chrysler got the images of the sheep. So we've got all these people getting this different footage. And I guess when I was watching, A lot of these, I had read the story about how, you know, they got the footage of the live birth. But I also remember everything we talked about with the living desert and with some of the later true life adventures, that a lot of things were staged. It it was an interesting kind of dynamic to go between, like, what was really magic caught on camera and what was fabricated. So some of the scenes, when you watch it on Disney+, Plus. The footage is suddenly very blurry, low quality. And to me, that means that that was an authentic moment. To get it, and it's a good shot, the best quality. I think that's great. But then there were other scenes that I looked at and I went, yeah, there's no way that was authentic. Specifically for me, when they showed the ducks landing on the river and the river being frozen. If they had one or two of the shots... And I've just got to believe that there was somebody holding a duck, just flinging it like bowling ball at the other ducks on the river. Now, just for the record, I don't I don't want us to get sued or anything. This is not me saying that filmographers did do that. But that was what I was thinking about during it, that, you know, some of their shots were a little too convenient. 
They had some absolutely amazing shots that are totally real. And then there are some a little too good to be true shots that were almost certainly kind of made to go that way. Yeah, and, and again, like like I was talking about with the, the prairie dogs, but um, also with the bighorn sheep, there's definitely a lot of like tricky editing. Like <laughs> in the bighorn sheep, there's at least twice uh, where a sheep is like running and then it cuts to the two sheep butting heads. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's that's not what happened. Like that sheep running is not in like you know they're not charging at each other full bore like they they from what i understand about bighorn sheep they tend to sort of just like stand around each other and all of a sudden like boom like you know it, but it's not like a running uh bullfighting style like full speed <laughs> ramming into each other so there's there's definitely some tricky editing too although i will say they definitely toned down i would say the cartoony elements compared to the living desert no square dancing scorpions this time, unfortunately. Definitely some nice, some nice fun shots, but not not quite that wacky this time. Yeah, and I for one enjoyed the Rams butting heads to the Anvil chorus. <laughs> I thought again, like the that reminded me of something I would see on like YouTube or TikTok, like where they're like, "We're going to take this establishing song, we're going to edit the footage." that we have to match the song. I thought it was well done, and I'm glad they got what I assume are a few, like, a few of those sort of, like, thundercrack sounds are, like, is the actual sound of the Rams butting heads. But I, I, I'm I, glad we got both. Like, I, I you know, I want to get the real thing, but also I didn't mind the sort of, like, let's have fun with this and, like, edit it together. And, like, it's such a, it's such a good marriage of song and image. There's a lot of good stuff in this movie, but there's definitely some points where it gets a bit boring, so it's nice to have that, you know, added narrative or comedic moments, especially once we just got into, this is this mating ritual, and this is this mating ritual, yeah. and this is this one. The the mating rituals were a little, a little bit, like, there's just a lot of them, mm-hmm. and each one of them is demonstrated with, like, a succession of quick clips, where it's not like... We're watching a long mating sequence of like two individual birds, and there's kind of like a narrative within the footage. It's like, here's one bird doing their dancing thingy, here's another bird of the same kind doing that again and again and again, and now here's another bird, and then again, you know. So mm-hmm. I think th- there's like repetition of repetition in that in that sequence that becomes a little much. And then some of the commentary is like a little more racist than I would like, unfortunately. Um I was like watching the beginning of this movie and I was like, ooh, maybe this will some maybe this will surprise us and be like the least problematic of, of these movies. And then it was like ten minutes in and I was like, well, never mind. I will say I heard some of the terminology they used and immediately went, Oh boy, this is going to be terrible. And there was absolutely some very problematic stuff that was thrown in there very stereotypical uh, depictions of indigenous people, very much the stereotype that indigenous people don't exist anymore, that they are, you know, part of the past. I will say it was not as bad as I was expecting, just given what we've already seen from Disney, but it was worse than I would have expected given that it did not have a disclaimer at the beginning. 
Oh yeah, I had not thought about that with the lack of disclaimer, but that that is a very good point. If somebody at Disney is listening, you should probably add that disclaimer to this movie. Because they probably I don't know if, if what I don't know how they decide those things. I'm not gonna speculate because it's only gonna make me upset. But yeah, it, it's it's sad that Disney has lowered the lowered the bar so much that you're like, you know, they were like compared to everything else. That was not as racist as I was uh, as I, I was afraid it was going to be. What's funny is when this actually came out, there was absolutely no controversy over that. So, you know, there had been controversy over things like Peter Pan as there absolutely should be. But this mm-hmm. was not a thing that really anybody found controversial. The controversial thing was the fact that they showed a live birth on screen for a G-rated audience. Yeah, so apparently um, in 1954, as the movie was going to come out, uh, New York State censors banned the movie entirely for its depiction of a live buffalo birth, uh, only allowing the film to be screened after the ACLU got involved on Disney's behalf. The National Catholic Legion of Decency actually did approve the picture in its entirety. So there was controversy around that. Um, I did have a quote from Walt that I found in Letter Walton's book where he says, the birth scene never would have appeared on the screen if I believed it might offend an audience. It would be a shame if New York children had to believe the stork brings buffaloes too. Which is, it's such a funny quote and it, it makes the whole controversy sound so silly. And I feel like this is, this is right in line with the sort of emergence of like Uncle Walt, the character version of Walt that he sort of plays on his TV shows and like kind of becomes his personality as we get into the 50s where, you know, it's a sort of like Mark Twain approach of like, I'm just, if I get in an argument with somebody like this over over my, over the, you know, over a movie I'm putting out, then I'll just make them sound silly for even thinking that. And, you know, I'm just a good natured Walt Disney from Missouri. And if I thought this was going to be a problem with anybody, well, I definitely wouldn't have put it in, in my movie. And like, you know, I, I guess kids are, are going to miss out on this educational opportunity to learn about where baby buffaloes come from. <laughs> I love that this comes from the man who put that baby elephants do, in fact, come from the stork just a few years earlier. Because I, I listen to that quote and I just think about Dumbo and all of the various <laughs> animals that are brought by the stork. Uh, I also thought about that when I read that quote, and I was like, that's so funny that I can I can almost picture a baby buffalo being carried by one of those storks with the little, like, it's not a, they're not bellhops, obviously, but like, you know, bellhops and like tele, people who deliver telegrams are like the only people I can think of who wear those those little caps. But I, I definitely thought about that, and, and I feel like Disney would be like, well, you know, those aren't true life adventures, those are fantasy adventures. Uh, of course. <laughs> So I, I do think it's interesting that for even even with some of the stage animal footage, Walt's like, this is reality and kids have to learn about nature. And so, you know, nobody thought it was going to be controversial until this New York decision. And then in on August 12th in 1954, uh, the Los Angeles Daily News reported that, quote, an avalanche of protests from religious, social and civic groups uh, followed, you know, an outcry against that New York decision. And ultimately it was... Uh, reversed on August 13th, and the director of the ACLU at that time, George Rehnquist, called it, quote, the midsummer madness of an overzealous member of the board. And so the movie comes out, and 
there were definitely more people like in favor. Not that people were like clamoring, like we want to see the, this birth, but they're like, no, that should be a thing that belongs in this movie for a G-rated audience. And you know, it's always it's always nice to hear of a a populist uprising against censorship. Nobody said that the mating rituals were problematic, despite the fact that those are inherently sexual. Nobody mm -hmm. said that the vast number of killing scenes in the various true life adventures was problematic. I mean, we see in one moment we're seeing, oh, this baby deer is hiding and it's wonderful. And in another scene, it's like, oh, yeah, and mama uh, mountain lion is going to go murder a deer real quick. You know, no big deal. So I, I do find it funny that birth is is this area where we're like, children can't know where babies come from. And and so I do find it just a very funny situation that that was the big controversy of this whole situation. Yeah, and, and it's, it is funny because when I was watching it and that scene was happening, I was like, hmm, I'm, I did not expect for them to be, for there to be birthing footage in this movie at all and i you know i know that's sort of part and parcel with nature documentaries in general but i, I was actually surprised to see it i wasn't offended obviously it wasn't something i was expecting to see um having watched it again before the, i do my research so you were not surprised by the scene but i certainly was yeah i i find that it's it's helpful to know what's coming just so that i can be looking for certain things I think that one of the things that stood out to me most, so this came out August 17th, 1954. Osley Crowther, our good old friend, put out a review in the New York Times. And I think that this review is about, about the best possible way that you can define Disney's version of a nature documentary. So Crowther said, They hold up a mirror to nature. But the mirror is always flat and clear. Sometimes it is willfully angled of a gag. It is a handsome and entertaining look-see at various enactments of nature's characters. I just feel like that's such a good description of it. Like, they're holding a mirror, but it might be a carnival mirror. It's definitely the same animals, but if their head just looks like it's, you know, drifting off their body a bit, that's just the lens we're using for this particular section. I think that's a really fair description also. Like, it, it's actually not too judgmental over it because I can see both sides of it. I, I can't imagine, you know, obviously, like, I can't imagine in when you're shooting on, you know, like, physical film stock, that's, how, you know, that's part of the reason why they had to set up the, like, tripwires for the buffalo to activate the camera because, you know, there's you only physically have so much film that you can take with you into the field to try to capture these things. And so I think this is an approach that works. Like, you know, again, a cultural stuff aside, like even at the time, I maybe would have wanted some kind of disclaimer somewhere, just saying like some animal footage was captured in captivity or, or something just to like acknowledge the, the fictional aspects of it. But I overall found this like pretty engaging and like, you know, it, it's, it's also rather short. I think it's like an hour and 11 minutes or something like that. I found it entertaining. I learned some things I didn't know. So assuming that like the narration is factually correct when it's not uh, being racist, I, I see value in this approach, especially when it comes to kids. Like this is something I think a kid 
might find a little boring, but would definitely sit through a little bit more than a drier version of this for sure. I think that this probably could have been cut down to like 30 or 45 minutes just with the repetition we've talked about. But other than that, there's definitely stuff to learn in it. It's got a good angle as far as conservation. I'm not a big fan of nature. It's just, I tend to find them pretty boring. So that was an unfortunate thing, but I, and I'm going to sound like an idiot saying this, I did not know what prairie dogs looked like. Like, I've heard the term before, but I just figured they were kind of small dogs. And no, they're like a a cross between like a groundhog and a squirrel. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, this this did air alongside Seal Island as the third episode of the Disneyland TV show. And I think if if the True Life Adventures were being done for TV instead of, you know, if this had been done like 10 years later, then I think it would have been edited down to run at like 50 minutes or whatever, however long TV shows actually were in, in the 50s. You know, you'd lose the color aspect, which we talked about last time being a key ro- a key part of it. But I think just in general, this makes sense to me as a like, you know, a, a full size episode of a TV show from the time, maybe more than a feature film, because, again, you wouldn't have to add in sort of the filler of the repetition. So just to wrap up a little bit on the release and the understanding of it in its own time, the video 1.75 at the box office. That's respectable. It's not blowing other things out of the water, not a critical failure either. By and large, we've kind of been lacking in, you know, critically acclaimed works from Disney. Uh, we've had a couple of them, but it's it's not a huge trend in the 50s. But this actually won the fifth Berlin Inch Big Gold Medal for documentaries and culture films. And it also won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature of 1954. Disney was kind of the first person to do this kind of thing at this point. It was actually a very well-received film, despite the much information on it from the Disney Corporation. So I just just looked quickly because I was genuinely curious about what the other nominees for Best Documentary Feature were at the Oscars that year. And the only other one is The Stratford Adventure, which was a documentary about the founding of the Stratford uh, Festival in Ontario, Canada. They built a theater for the staging of the finest Shakespearean drama. And so there's like, they got like Alec Guinness to perform in like Richard III and uh, some other some other productions and they like did a documentary of it. it's like it's just funny that it's like up against like a showbiz documentary essentially even though it's about live theater and you know but like alec guinness like i feel like people are like oh yeah like i'll watch the alec guinness documentary <laughs> it's just funny how like the more like things don't change with the oscars it's like oh there's a documentary about glitzy people like that'll get nominated this year to be completely honest i probably would rather watch that over this but that's that's just a personal preference. I really enjoy Shakespeare. I think if you don't like Shakespeare, this definitely makes more sense as, you know, a better picture. That's not a state that's not a judgment on the quality. It's just funny that there were only two nominees that, that year, and it was a Disney nature documentary and a documentary about Canadian Shakespeare productions. Um mm-hmm. like it's just like, I don't even know what documentaries are at this point in time in terms of what they're actually showing and, and all that kind of stuff. Like, that's 
that's a project for some time. It's just like go down the rabbit hole of like all of the first, you know, 25 documentary nominees. You know, Ryan, I really like working with you, but I will not be your co-host on that podcast. You're going to have to find somebody else to watch all of these early documentaries with you. I am scraping by with Disney's documentaries as it is. <laughs> that actually would be a good po- podcast project now that I think about it, but because <laughs> you'd have to you'd have to make it like almost like really silly to like <laughs> get through how dry those things probably are. So talking about the legacy of of The Vanishing Prairie, uh, it was released on video in 1985 and 1993 in the United States. I'm sure many of those tapes ended up in classrooms on carts rolling between substitute (laughs) teachers because this seems like the perfect thing to throw on for a bunch of kids. That's true. Uh, (laughs) When, yeah. (laughs) It also, part of, there were clips edited into There's a Best of True Life Adventures feature that we will talk at some point about we're doing an episode on it how much of that episode is about that topic that's remain that remains to be seen an article from turner classic movies describes the vanishing prairie as quote the most famous and greatest installment of the true life adventures mentioning that it won the oscar but according to them it established the nature documentary as a viable commercial enterprise and became a lasting hit for the disney canon The Vanishing Prairie was also so successful that it would be broken up into its constituent parts, so like the Buffalo Hurt segment, the Prairie Dog segment, etc., and marketed as individual educational shorts, often shown on on Disney for years to come. Uh, Today, it still holds up as a a great nature documentary, giving the viewer with breathtaking scenery and fascinating footage both education and entertainment. I think they're a little more high on it than we are. (laughs) Like I said, I I enjoyed it. I don't know in 2023 that I would necessarily recommend it. Like, I would probably see if there was a Prairie episode of, like, one of the Planet Earth miniseries or something that, you know, probably has a lot of similar footage but is more up-to-date and, again, less racist. Hopefully. I think it was interesting because, like we've talked about, I do the research first. And so, as I was researching this, you know, there's no information on this. Very few people talk about it. Turner Classic Movies says that it's the best thing ever. So it was definitely interesting to go into it, like watching it going, yeah, I mean, it it does what it says it's going to do. Like, that's good. I think I agree more with kind of the crowdsourced reviews of this. So it actually has an 87% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. That's made up of 84 votes, and then it has a 7.2 out of 10 on IMDb with 765. So admittedly, not that many people voting on it, but somewhere between a 72 and an 87, I think is a fair score for how it holds up today. There's a very specific, I feel like, self-selecting group of people who are like watching Disney documentaries in the age of the internet and also are people who log audience and uh, scores on IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> like, I feel like that is like a very, that is a niche, a niche audience if there ever was one, you know, but, but I, like I said, I think this is less interesting than uh, the living desert in terms of, you know, being an artifact of, of like history of filmmaking But I found it perfectly enjoyable. So if you were to rate this overall, zero to ten, where would you put this movie? 
a three and a half or a four out of ten. Ouch. Well, I mean, I like it it does what it, it says it's going to do, and like I think some of the footage is pretty good, some of the footage is okay. You know, it is repetitive. Like it's it's not it's not a movie that I'm probably gonna go go back to. Because if I'm thinking of like five out of ten is like average, you know, it, it falls on the lower side of, of average, I guess. I think I go by like the US school standard of like mm. a 70 and up is passing. Like 50 is not your midpoint, 70 is your midpoint. For something to be like a 30 for me, it's gotta be really, really bad. <laughs> I I wouldn't put it there. Like you said, I don't really plan on watching this again. I thought the bur- the ducks flying into each other was kind of funny the first time. Once they did it, you know, ten more times, it lost a bit of interest. But you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it that bad of a score. Well, all right. So if if seventy is passing, then yeah, I'd, I'd probably give it a seventy. Like so, you know, somewhere. Like maybe it would get a sixty-five, but if I'm feeling if I'm feeling generous because they've made the they made the effort, like I'd probably go seventy. But you know, I think it's I think it's totally fine. It's it's a little it's a little vanilla. I mean, I I love the animated map. Like seeing them draw the map and like fill in like the different parts of the United States. Like that was great. But mm-hmm. I'm just a person who likes maps and animation. That's interesting. So you know, your mileage may vary there. I, I'm overall impressed with the footage, staged or not. Like the the Buffalo stuff is incredible, the Ram stuff is is pretty good, and the Prairie Dog stuff is is like I said, really well put together. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I love the approach of making like I just hope the Prairie Dogs were comfortable in like whatever this like ant farm setup was. Mm-hmm. So. If the animals are okay with it, then I'm okay with it. But I was like, I felt bad they were like shining the lights on them in there. Cause I was like, yeah, like it's supposed to be dark in there. Like I hope they're not like confused, right? So beyond my concerns about animal well being, which I have with every nature documentary I watch, but like especially these quote unquote true life adventures. So aside from my skepticism there, you know, I really like the prairie dog section probably the most overall. With something like this, there's always kind of two questions to it. One of them is, of course, the animal well-being. And the other is, if we had seen this movie, you know, 70 years ago, would we have thought it was better quality than now? Because, of course, now we can just fly a drone over there with 4K, you know, footage Mm -hmm. and make sure we get all the perfect shots. I think given that this was... A group of guys just hanging out in the prairie for a couple of years. Like, that's impressive. I I do want to definitely give them credit for that. Oh, they get an A for effort, for sure. And and you're right. I do think that, like, if I was a contemporary of this movie, my I would I would be much higher on it, I think, because... You know, again, even if I was a person still concerned about animal well-being, I'm like, well, they did like an amazing job of like capturing them on film, no matter how they had to do it. You know, and so I give it a lot of credit there. But I, I do think the art form of nature documentary just also has gotten a lot better with technology, and hopefully, as far as I'm as far as I'm allowing myself to know, because I'm not looking into it, like both better technology and better ethics. In 
most cases. That seems to be true. So we've got a lot that we want to talk about here. Is there anything else you want to say on the Vanishing Prairie before we turn to our season three wrap up? No, I I don't think so. Except just to completely agree that like ducks sliding around on ice is inherently funny and made me laugh out loud more than once. I think that's that's an important note for us to have here. (laughs) So as usual, we always like to talk through kind of what we've watched during our season, how we felt about it, and how it kind of connects to Disney as it was and Disney now. So for a brief recap for both us and for the audience, season three has included Cinderella, Treasure Island, Alice in Wonderland, The Story of Robin Hood and His Merry Men, Peter Pan, The Sword in the Rose, The Living Desert, Rob Roy, The Highland Rogue, and The Vanishing Prairie. For the sake of this wrap-up, we're not going to include Pooh, Blood, and Honey, because it, of course, did not come out in this time, although it was surprisingly appropriate to our Adventures in Literature category. Yeah, it, it probably would get come up in at least one of these categories. <laughs> we'll, we'll kick it off by talking about our favorite films of the season. I'm also going to say both my like animated and my live-action pick, because mm-hmm. it just the animated movies in general, I think, are just... I tend to enjoy them better, so uh, it's like not fair for a um, the live action films to just not get mentioned at all. But I think my actual favorite overall, and this I am like making this decision in real time. I did not think about this before recording, but when I look at this list, I think I'm surprising myself in saying my overall favorite here is Cinderella, which is not. A movie I necessarily think about as one of my personal favorites when I think about the overall Disney canon, but just the way that this season falls, and I think watching it, you know, again with the brand new 4K restoration and like seeing like the original colors uh, finally being restored, and just appreciating appreciating it really in a whole new way because of everything we had done on the podcast up to that point. I think Cinderella actually rose in my estimation, and then. Seeing what came right after, I think watching every movie and thinking back to Cinderella, I'm like, no, I still think that that is that's the one that has everything in terms of like the story. There are characters that are funny. There are characters that are sympathetic. There's like good like you know suspense moments throughout it. It's more than just a retelling of Cinderella, which you can tell is a very short, very very short story. Like it really adds new characters with the mice and the detail about the king and his advisor, the, the guy with the monocle. You know, it, it, it creates comedy and, and sort of fills things out and it's got uh, a, a couple of great songs in it. And as much as I like aspects of Peter Pan very much, the more I watch, it's, it's one of those where I don't watch it often as an adult because it makes me so uncomfortable uh, now. So yeah, I think Cinderella overall for mine and then I'm also a little disappointed to say Treasure Island is my second favorite, if only because there's so many of these I hadn't seen before. And I was like hoping that like one of them would like really blow me away and I'd be like, oh my God, it's this like hidden gem. And while I, while I like these movies overall, um, there isn't one that I would like necessarily be like, like if I knew somebody who was, who really liked Robin Hood in general, I'd be like, oh, you should watch the Disney live action Robin Hood because it's pretty good and it's interesting and it's got some nice moments in it. But there isn't one where I would like recommend to anybody being like, oh, you really have to see 
the living desert it's like nobody it's this really obscure disney movie but it's actually like really awesome like I, nothing mm-hmm. nothing quite got there and so i think treasure island you know is my second favorite or, or my favorite live action overall I think it's funny that you, you know, brought up the idea that the live actions wouldn't get brought up at all, because thinking about it, I was trying to come up with my favorite and then my second favorite, and they're both live action ones. (laughs) I feel like the animation of this period is a great collage of fun moments and Disney iconicity, but I don't know that any of the animated films blew me away. I I feel like a bad woman for saying this, but Treasure Island was definitely my favorite, despite the fact that, as we've said a few times, no women. No women in the entire movie. I just, I felt like it had great humor. It knew that its effects were terrible, and for me, if you are self-aware of your low budget or of your low technological capabilities, and it's funny, it's not bad, And then my second place is actually going to be Robin Hood. It was fairly fun. It was surprisingly more historically accurate than I would have guessed. So yeah, I actually probably would suggest to people in my life to watch Treasure Island and Robin Hood. Definitely not The Sword in the Rose. Maybe Rob Roy. I I actually do like the live action more than anything else in this uh, chunk of time. Well, that's good. Like, I, I'm, I'm glad that we have these different points of view on this because, you know, like I said, I like, all, I like all these movies to one degree or another. That said, least favorite overall, I'm probably gonna say, like, as we talked about extensively on that episode, I'm never gonna be a person that likes Alice in Wonderland or at least this incarnation of Alice in Wonderland. But like, I don't even want to say it's my least favorite because I don't, I don't think it's bad necessarily. It's just not it's not my cup of tea. So I'm, I'm probably going to say more in tea, terms of like least favorite. <laughs> like the, the movie I actually think is the least good movie here is probably The Vanishing Prairie, I think. Like that's that's one where it's, again, like I, I liked it. I liked all these movies to one degree or another, but that's probably the one that I would I would be least likely to like revisit because I, I really do want to watch other people watch the living desert because I it's so it's so weird when you think about it out of context. Like if I, you know wasn't aware that this thing even existed and I just like saw it, I'd be like, what the hell am I watching? So I think I think the sort of toned down nature of the Vanishing Prairie by comparison kind of ends ends up putting it at the at the bottom of this list and and again i'm i'm sort of discounting the super racist elements of peter pan just out of existence so i'm i'm not i'm trying not to factor that in because it just it makes it really complicated because how can i weigh that against tinkerbell on on some level you know and and all of the innovative and interesting things that are in that movie you know, that we can't separate from the, like, it, it's just too complex. I can't square that circle in my head to try to figure out how to, how to compare Peter Pan in this equation at all. I think acknowledging that I can't watch the movie really at all, but I can't, I can't watch it without it being physically painful to me. I mean, they just, uh, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm like, I, I want to take elements of Peter Pan and say those are great and then just burn the movie with fire. 
if we take that out of the equation, I think it's very obvious that my least favorite is The Sword and the Rose. Because the nature documentaries, I'm like, I don't really care. Like, they are what they are, and I'm not a fan, and that's fine. The Sword and the Rose, I don't know why, but I just viscerally hate it. You find it offensive because you're 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 too close to it with with uh, your interest in tutors. Yeah, so I I have so many different layers of movies I don't like here because there's movies I just don't like the genre of. There's movies that I have to hate because they're just so horrendous. And then there's just the ones that I look at and I go like, "Ooh, why?" And and that's that's the sword in the rose for me. That's totally fair. I think The Sword in the Rose is very charming, uh, but out of that sort of trilogy of Robin Hood, Sword in the Rose, and Rob Roy, I probably like them best to least in that order. But, but again, this is why like we don't have to we don't have to agree, which is totally fine. I totally get where you're coming from on them. But uh, and then our favorite and least favorite, you know, from going back to the beginning of the podcast. For me personally, again, even though there are obviously some deeply problematic elements, Fantasia is 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 still my favorite of these. I just like there's something about that that just feels magical to me in, in a lot of ways. Although I will say I've I've thought a lot surprisingly about Bambi since we since we covered it. That's one that actually has stuck with me in a way that I I hadn't expected, and so I wanted to give it a give it a shout out. You know, I think my least my least favorite overall of these is probably, I mean, again, discounting Song of the South and just because, you know, it, it's like not, in a, it's not necessarily, it's not a, it's not like, even though I think the movie is bad, regardless of how racist it is, it's not interesting to say the Song of the South is the worst movie <laughs> that they've made so far. So just for the interest of actually voicing a, a personal opinion instead of a canonical uh, opinion, I think my least favorite overall is probably it's probably so dear to my heart, but I don't think it's bad. It's just it's one of those where like that is just like it's like not it's not for me. Like it's a little it's a little boring, it's a little cutesy, you know. I didn't hate watching it and I I appreciate it even more after we did the the podcast. That's so actually probably one of my favorite episodes of this podcast. But it's it's probably my least favorite of of all of these movies so far. Which feel I I feel bad saying that because it's such a cute movie. But that's the one that probably just does the least for me in terms of like things I'm interested in overall. I think for me, I'm gonna start with the least favorite. I agree. Like if we were making a tier list of like Disney movies. Like, we can have, like, S tier and then, like, A to F on, like, good quality. And then mm-hmm. I feel like there should just be a tier of, you know what you did, that Song of the <laughs> South needs to be in, you know, segments of Fantasia and Peter Pan definitely need to be in. And I, I do feel like it takes the opinion out of it a little bit because we just acknowledge that those are are really, really awful. I... God, the the package films were so hard to get through for me. Mm-hmm. There were some good things in them. I honestly don't remember the difference between Make Mine Music, Melody Time, and Fun and Fancy Free. So I'm just going to throw those three at a wall 
because I honestly don't remember which is which. Yeah, Fun and Fancy Free is the one with Mickey and the Beanstalk. Okay, that was decent. Bongo, I think, is the other the other segment of that. Uh, oh, Bongo. Yeah, I'm. I'm just gonna say, package films in general are are probably my least favorite. As for favorite, I feel like Snow White just wins in some ways because it's Snow White and it was so revolutionary and holds up in so many ways. You know, I watched the movie and I just caught myself grinning. And I don't think that there's really been anything since that point that felt that good to me. But I also want to call out Pinocchio. I think it's funny. I'd like to re-listen to our podcast on that one because I'm pretty sure I hated Pinocchio when we actually watched it. (laughs) But the visuals in my opinion, are the height of Disney mm-hmm. up to, you know, the 50s. So, you know, I don't think there's really any other movie that I can look at and go like, oh, the depth and the beauty and the way they use the multiplane camera. Like, artistically speaking, Pinocchio is as good as it got at this point. So I think I just have to call those two out as kind of my favorite by story and vibe and my favorite by artistic merit. I think that's totally fair. Pinocchio is a movie I like looking at, but I don't like watching. <laughs> like that's fair. Um, that's fair. <laughs> because it it's beautiful. It's apt. It's objectively beautiful, and the story is ugly to me. <laughs> and I just, you know, there's something about. It. I just, I just don't enjoy. I don't. Ha- I don't have that sense of fun while watching Pinocchio that I want to be having. I do want to shout out the package films just because I like them and it I feel like I like them in part because they they just they shouldn't exist. Like they don't make any sense. Like they they only exist because of a certain particular st- circumstance that the, that the studio was in where they're like, "Well, we'll just release a bunch of shorts together as a feature." Some of those, it would be interesting to have seen which one of those would have stood on their own and, like, you know, won the Academy Award for Best Short some year instead of just sort of being lumped together and ultimately forgotten. But I I, I actually almost did pick Ludus Amigos, though, just because, you know, it has some, some things I like in it, but Three Caballeros is just that much better and also is less problematic. Oh, I, I, I'm also just really tickled that neither of us said Victory Through Air Power was our least favorite. <laughs> Okay, no, because I, I was looking at it as I was going through the list, and I was trying to figure out how I felt. And you know, I don't dislike Victory Through Air Power. Like, it's just a sound movie for me. Very surprising, given that it's literally a military handbook. I like that it... it exists it's weird it's a it's this strange artifact that i find weirdly compelling and the history of aviation stuff is also just really cool i think and like really fun that first part of the movie where they go through like the wright brothers and it's all these like cartoon gags about germans shooting each other in world war one is just weird and and the fact that it exists is is fun but yeah so I, i think i think it's interesting maybe we should do a tier ranking at some point yeah, that, that's something we should think about, you know, as we come back for the next season. Maybe we should do it at the end of the next season. Just do like a lightning round tier ranking. So I think, I think that'd be fun. 
you know, and then what have we learned about Disney? And I think uh, I knew nothing about the about RKO and the money having to stay in England. And like, that's one of the reasons that's why they started doing live action films in the first place. Like that whole story of how these movies came to exist is the kind of thing I was hoping to sort of discover and learn by doing this podcast. And this is just, I think a really great example of things that you don't know about Disney because, you know, people don't necessarily talk about these movies really. This is often termed kind of the silver age I would call it a mini renaissance. So in for my very niche listeners, I would call this the the Carolingian Renaissance to the, you know, 90s films true renaissance. It's the rebirth of creativity. They did some really cool things. They played around a little bit in some ways that they weren't able to do from the war. And I think that they were really kind of solidifying who Disney is. Where, you know, season one was, let's do fun things. Season two was, let's survive. Season three was, let's define who we are. And I think that they did very well. Again, I don't love all of the films in this period, but if you look at the animated films, they're some of the most iconic animated films ever and certainly in disney they created a very solid british legacies with the live actions the documentaries set up a huge part of the company moving forward and i think created what you know we read from bosley crowther this idea of holding up the mirror but it's a funhouse mirror i i do feel like this is the time when disney figured out who they were I don't know that it's the best they ever were, but it's very, this is very much a season of this is Disney to me, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I I think that's totally accurate. Like, I do think of this period as them solidifying and expanding what Disney means, you know, because I think with Cinderella, with Alice in Wonderland, with Peter Pan, like, you know, we talked about this it's close to a house style as Disney ever gets where you have animators who've worked together for a long time and they've sort of been developing and refining like the ways that they draw humans and the way that they draw animals. And, you know, there's a sort of common like design theory laced through all three of these movies. And so I think with the similarity of the way they look, I also think of these, all three of these being very like blue, like having a a lot of blue prominent in the color palette, especially Cinderella and, and Peter Pan. Yeah, I was thinking of, of Wendy and like the skies above London because uh, it's at nighttime and then all the water around Neverland, like when they have to save Tiger Lily and stuff. Like there's a lot of different blues, I think, kind of throughout, you know, but I think they they really did like expand that to your point, they defined what Disney means and they've sort of been developing that meaning. And, you know, now it's now it's a a brand that goes not just for animation, but also for these nature documentaries, for live action movies. It's bringing Disney out of the era of just cartoons and into sort of like family entertainment as they kind of like invent it. Looking back on that, you know, we talk about Disney classics, both we and just kind of culture at large. Yeah, I mean, for me, the ones that I would sort of elevate to the status of classics you know, would be Cinderella, Treasure Island, and Alice in Wonderland. Like, I think those are, 
those are the three that like if you are someone who likes disney if you consider yourself sort of a fan of disney like those are three i feel like you you should watch you should have seen them you know i think without cinderella we don't really get the disney princess branding you know eventually Mm -hmm. in the 90s and i think without alice like the alice in wonderland characters pop up so often and so frequently you know not just throughout the culture but even very specifically the disney versions have become iconic in their own right as separate from the overall idea of alice in wonderland and then i think treasure island is legitimately a very a very good movie and actually extremely culturally impactful like if you know without robert newton's performance as long john silver we don't have talk like a pirate day because he invented the way pirates talk like we don't get uh, like he's mentioned as being really formative to the way the pirates talk on the ride pirates of the caribbean that they built in Disneyland in the 1960s, because uh, I just watched that episode of Behind the Attraction on Disney Plus, and they were using clips of Treasure Island and like as part of the inspiration for how the pirates talk and look uh, on that ride, which then many many decades later becomes a successful film franchise in its own right. And so I think again, if you're a fan of Disney, pirates like pirates are sort of one of Disney's kind of subcategories of things because obviously also captain hook is a pirate you know and we they had that jake and the neverland pirates tv show like there's there's something about pirates that is like on brand like part of the disney brand somewhere somehow yeah i think that to some extent they just have rebellious guys and the pirates are kind of the epitome of it but we get it with you know robin hood and rob roy but we also get it with like aladdin just you Mm. know Guys that aren't part of society. And now that I'm saying that, of course, the Joker needs to be a Disney prince, I guess. And you never know what David Zaslav is going to sell off next, so... True. So when it comes to classics, I did not think of Treasure Island as a classic until you described it. I would say that Treasure Island is a classic, but not a Disney classic. And I would say that Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan have classic Disney characters, but aren't necessarily classic Disney films. So I'm I'm really being picky here. If if you had to like pick a list of movies that people had to see to know Disney, I think the only one from this period is Cinderella. And it's not that the others aren't important, as we've talked about, they are so so integral to the company but i think as a whole if we're not picking the movie apart for specific scenes or characters or pirate dialects i think cinderella is really the only one that stands as a class alongside you know the first five that's that's totally fair. I have lower ratings of movies, and you have higher standards for what's a classic. So the, so it's, <laughs> you know, but but yeah, no, I I yes, if you if you raise the standard that high, I'm still gonna make a hard case for Treasure Island, especially it being the first live action uh, movie that they put out. But but no, I I think Cinderella obviously you know deserves to be there. Um, And we actually have a third topic for this episode, as we mentioned at the beginning. On October 15th, 
of this year. Uh, Disney put out uh, Once Upon a Studio, which is a nine-minute short on Disney+. Plus. It is, to summarize, the characters of Disney's animated films come to life from pictures hanging on the walls of the Roy E. Disney animation building at the end of a workday to take a group photo. And there's just a ton of characters sort of interacting, get, getting together for the photo. There's a few small gags here and there. The characters featured go across a ton of different things. Um, all 62 feature animated feature films, many shorts, as well as Reluctant Dragon, Mary Poppins, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and Pete's Dragon, which are, of course, uh, hybrid movies that have animation in them, even though they also have live action. The film was dedicated to Bernie Mattinson, who appears in the short, and as Megan mentioned, was the company's longest-serving employee. He actually passed away eight months ago, so it's nice that he got to be a part of it. And sort of, there's a like a a very short few-minute bonus feature that I wish they had just put on, like tacked on to the credits of the short itself. That you know is people talking about Bernie Mattinson, kind of giving his backstory of you know, working for the company for uh, almost half the company's uh, life, which is really impressive. You know, he, they mentioned in there that he worked for Disney longer than Walt himself because uh, Walt passed away at a relatively early age. And so, you know, they, they put this out. There was a, a kind of a push on social media about it. So I watched it again to refresh for this. And and overall, I I like it. I think it's cute. There's a couple of good character interactions. I wish there was like a little bit more to it, maybe, but I also kind of like that it's relatively straightforward and like pretty quick and is more about showing as many characters as they can, you know, more than kind of telling a story overall. And I will say, despite me kind of feeling, wanting to feel cynical about it, the moment of Walt's picture and Mickey, like I got choked up both times I watched it. That's just the kind of person I am and I have to deal with that. Because I feel like it's very much like, you know, if I'm not a person who really likes to throw around like emotionally manipulative as a negative for movies, because that's what movies are supposed to do. But it's one that like is more effective than I want it to be. That's fair. I think that that's actually one of the best parts of it, because it it kind of is a brief tribute to Walt of especially having it be Mickey and Walt since they were so so much the same person in so many ways. I I really loved getting the chance to see that moment. I also recommend that everybody watch the other extra. So on Disney Plus, you go to the extras tab and it gives you both of these two kind of setups. The other one is called Richard Sherman at home in Walt's office and it adds just a little bit more to that moment where we get to learn that specifically the song that's playing or the musical theme that's playing during that moment is Feed the Birds, which was one of Walt's favorite songs that he specifically listened to Richard Sherman playing in his office multiple times. I feel like it's one of those moments where if you don't know as much about the studio or the backstory, you look at it and you go, oh, okay, they're just having the moment. But the more you know about the history and about, you know, the interactions behind the scenes, 
the more impactful that moment is for you. I don't know that it's necessarily emotionally manipulative as much as a an acknowledgement of where the company came from and all of the depth that we don't see on the screen. You're absolutely right. And it it like I said, it's just that cynical part of my brain. And and you know, from what I've read about it, I feel like the people who worked on it, like this was a very earnest effort. And I'm I'm not denigrating that in any way. It was just one of those things where it's like yeah, I know they're going to pull my heartstrings here. And I'm just mad that like, I almost cried over, you know, a moment that lasts like maybe 15 seconds <laughs> because it's just how effective it is. And, you know, for some reason, I I don't feel this way when I was younger, but Mickey, I just find Mickey just like, I can't even explain how much I like Mickey Mouse at this point in my life compared to when I was a kid where I was like, yeah, Mickey's kind of like whatever. Like he's like the company mascot. Maybe it's watching those shorts and then giving him a personality again that has actually like changed my mind about it. But whatever it is, like I said, I I was like holding back tears like hard both times I was watching it. And you know, I think that bit with the piano is also like extremely moving if you know that backstory, that backstory to it. And and again, I think that's also like a nice I don't I don't want to call it an Easter egg because it's just like you know, if you know it, you're getting more out of it emotionally. You're not necessarily getting the tickle of like, oh, they're referencing that thing. But it's it's like bring it's an it's it's a um, you know it, it's an emotional thing that they're acknowledging more than it's a like factoid that they're they're putting in there. You know, and and I honestly didn't expect characters from the shorts or you know I, I only expected sort of like the feature animated film canon of characters Mm -hmm. in this. So when, you know, I saw Humphrey and Oswald and even like, you know, Casey at the bat and Johnny Appleseed and Pecos Bill um, and Pedro the Plane, like I was, I was surprised to see those characters in, in this and sort of like right alongside, you know, the genie and Aladdin and Cinderella, you know, so that it it was kind of cool, especially on second watch to try to like spot uh, as many characters as I could. Yeah, I think that, you know, we talked about Easter eggs earlier. If you just want to watch this infinitely, you'll find so many different characters or musical cues to different things. I I was surprised and delighted to see just trees in the background that I'm pretty sure are from Flowers and Trees, the actual first feature film. Well, a short that became... I just think there's so many different interesting parts that they put in it. I like the kind of gag with, oh, we broke the camera, we've got to put the camera back together. But I think that the earnestness, as you had said, was a real benefit to this, that I think in addition to being a like publicity stunt, it's also a legitimate like passion project for the people who worked on it. But I think they also just did such a good job blending the live action of what the studio actually looks like, the 2D animation, the various 3D animations, and really made it look, you know, somehow realistic with all of those different layers put in there. I think on a technical level, it's actually really stunning. You know, like seeing Moana hold a 2D flounder is 
just something I never thought I would see <laughs> did also make me wish that in the live action movie they had just used that flounder as flounder. <laughs> but but no, I, I think the blending of all three elements is, is is really incredible. You know, and even I don't know if it was I don't know if all the animation was new or if they like, you know, scanned parts of it and, and cut it together. I, I didn't look into it that deeply, but like seeing the different animated elements interact like that um, was actually like really impressive. You know, you could kind of tell when they were using archival voices versus newly recorded voices, especially on the very older ones, like the, like Jiminy Cricket and the fairies from Sleeping Beauty. You could kind of hear a different, ele- a, a different feel to the, to the voice recording. Like it was a little lower quality or just uh, had more background noise. Uh, within it but that actually also made me appreciate it more because it just felt you know connected to where they were sourcing things from i think my favorite like gag in the whole thing is the prince from cinderella losing his shoe Hmm. and then the dog from little mermaid running away with it it's just like the like him and cinderella like both laughing about it i was like man they almost have like more personality in this short than they do in their movie yes it's because of Cinderella 3, which I, I know we talked about a little bit with the Cinderella episodes. They, they have given Cinderella and the prince their own personalities that were absolutely not really there in the original. I, I loved that beat. I also really liked Anna being like, you think all the villains are going to be there? Like, I don't want to have to deal with Hans and Elsa just being like, no, I'll deal with it. And just freezing him in his picture frame. I thought that was a really good kind of beat too. But going back just briefly to the archival voices, like you said, I think it's a really cool tactic when they do that. You could always have new voice actors, you know, putting in those lines. There's plenty of people who do impressions or who do the modern versions of the characters. But there's something kind of special about having that original portrayal. To me, as a brief side trip, I think it's kind of similar to the Doctor Who 50th anniversary episode where they were able to cut together little snippets of all of the Doctors, including several who have passed away or aren't working on the show anymore, and were able to really have a character from... 1960s talking to a modern audience, I think it's great that we could have these voices really be represented and honored all the way from the start of the studio. Yeah, no, I I, I completely agree. And I think, you know, it really, you know, I, I also got a little choked up when I hear Jiminy Cricket sing When You Wish Upon a Star, because like, I know that specific recording of that song so well at this point that like, the the sound of the music itself makes me a little emotional at this point. So, you know, I think seeing this as a labor of love and, and then pulling it together, you know, it really does come across as heartfelt. And I think, and honoring the studio's legacy, you know, it was definitely feels like their top priority. I will say if I'm ever in a situation where I am putting together a team and I'm pulling people out of the multiverse like, I am definitely grabbing a Fix-It Felix because he just seems extremely useful to have around and also a nice guy. Yeah, I think that that was one of those great moments to be able to... So many of the Disney characters could have destroyed that camera. It's so easy to have that kind of a gag. 
but to be able to fix it and put it back together was such a kind of touching moment in honoring of that character and just a great way to the sing-along was cheesy but it was a nice way to show the chaos and the togetherness of the disney ensemble and the actual group photo at least there's a small version of it on wikipedia which means that there's a real you know a high quality version out there officially there are 500 characters in that photo apparently in the full size so i'm sure i'm sure that'll be eventually a puzzle that you can buy and put together and i might have to get it that would be a pretty awesome puzzle so i i condone that purchase <laughs> but yeah overall i i'm really glad that they did it it's it's really nice i and and maybe it will be i don't i don't know but it's nice that they put it on on there was a Wonderful World of Disney 100th Anniversary special. So it, it premiered on TV in front of Encanto and then on Disney+. Plus. But I kind of wish that it was running in front of the movie Wish. You know, that it would be, that seeing it theatrically would have been, would have been really nice. You know, they might still do that. We'll be seeing the Wish uh, movie on our own as well. I think that it's just a really interesting time between us doing this podcast and, of course, the company's own events, to really just look back at all that Disney has done and see, is Wish going to be the culmination that it claims to be like this was in some ways? How does Disney put all of its pieces together? I think there's just, there's so many different ways to look at it, and we will continue to do that as we move forward with this podcast. And speaking of as we move forward, Megan, if you want to tell everybody about what our upcoming schedule is. So, so far in our podcast adventure, we have gone from 1937 to 1954, which is only 17 years of the 100 we are celebrating this year. So it's going to be a wild ride and a very long one, I'm sure. As we move forward with new episodes of Dream With Mind and Heart, we have some special mid-season or off-season episodes for you guys. So the first two we have teased a little bit over this season. We're going to be talking about adaptations of Cinderella and Peter Pan that have come out either slightly before or since the Disney version, talking about what did they borrow from Disney, what did they do differently or the same, and how does that kind of show how iconic these characters and these movies are. Then, of course, we will be doing a brief discussion of our thoughts on Wish when it comes out. In 20 years, when we get up to the modern day, we will probably have a full episode on that. But that's more going to be just a discussion of our thoughts, especially as it kind of connects to this idea of the 100 years of Disney and honoring that. And then from there, we're going to have two special bonus episodes that are technically going to be connected to season four, which are looking at the Disneyland park and the Disneyland TV show that was so important in getting that park. So lots to look at. From there, we'll be going into our fourth season, which is at least currently titled Disneyland. I think you can imagine why. But we've got a lot coming up in these next few episodes. Couple of reminders before we end. 
Don't forget to send in the keywords for our giveaways, which can be found in two of this season's episodes. So you will have to listen through the episodes, but we do have some keywords. If you send those to us via email or social media, you could get entered into a drawing to get some special Disney swag. In the meantime, and for those keywords, you can always email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, X, whatever, at DreamMindHeart, and on Instagram at DreamWithMindAndHeart. As always, and especially because we're at the end of a season, we want to give some special shout-outs. Our thanks to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork, Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song, and of course, our lovely editor, Tessa Suela. I also just wanted to say that if you have been listening along with us, whether you are listening to this when this episode is brand new or if you're coming to it later, um, we deeply appreciate you listening. We hope that you are enjoying this podcast as much as we are enjoying doing this podcast. Uh, We hope you're learning as much as we're learning uh, in trying to put this podcast together. And I'm very proud of what we've done so far. And I'm very excited to uh, keep, you know, moving forward in time with all of these Disney movies.